This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for your support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 118. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me, shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. When you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. I hope you all are continuing to stay healthy and safe. Uh, you know, hopefully that we're going to soon see a, a light at the end of the tunnel here, and uh, you know, we'll all get to see each other in person soon. I uh, also like to say that uh, the dust has settled on our first ever virtual event, and I couldn't be more thrilled with the turnout. Uh, thank you to everyone that participated in the Planet Microcap Showcase Virtual Investor Conference. I appreciate you and thank you for checking it out. It was not easy transitioning our Vegas event into a virtual, but thanks to you, y'all really made it worth it. Uh, a special shout out to the entire SNN team and Issuer Direct for helping make the event a success, as well as to our speakers, panelists, sponsors, and presenting companies. For this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I spoke with Garvin J. Bush. He is the Chief Investment Officer for Green Alpha Advisors. The firm's mission is to, and I quote here, grow our clients' capital by building portfolios that tap into the innovation-driven economy and limit exposure to major systemic risks, end quote, according to their website. Green Alpha's focus on investing in the next economy and looking for companies that are addressing systemic risks is why I invited Garvin on to discuss their investing philosophy and thesis. He also uh, happens to have one of the coolest and more unique backgrounds uh, of, of any guest that I've spoken to. Uh, for all of you who are also fans of Indiana Jones, I think you will too. I'd also like to mention that we recorded this interview on Thursday, March 12th. Uh, we have a very brief discussion uh, on coronavirus and COVID in this interview. So Things I think we can all agree uh, have changed a lot since then. So I just want you to keep that in mind. Thank you again for tuning into episode 118 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Garvin J. Bush. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. And with me today, a very special guest new to the program, Mr. Garvin J. Bush. He is the co-founder and CIO of Green Alpha Advisors based in Boulder, Colorado. Garvin? Great to meet you. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Robert. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. So uh, as we do uh, with all my guests on the program, you know, let's start with your background. You know, how'd you get your start and, and then develop to where you're at today at Green Alpha Advisors? Uh, sure. In, in this industry, uh, I guess uh, you'd have to say, uh, going back to my MBA, I went to the, the Thunderbird School of Global Management at ASU. And uh, I got uh, I got my uh, MBA there, and uh, shortly thereafter, started working at Morgan Stanley. I uh, did a lot of different roles there. Uh, probably the most interesting of which was uh, being a, a global resource resource for a thing called strategic services. I learned a lot there because what they had us do was uh, 
roam around the world uh, kind of vetting projects or kicking off projects that the uh, executive management wanted to try. So we helped with an acquisition in Spain and one in the UK and one in Italy and uh, did some general stuff like that around the world. One of the things I did was help spin off the Morgan Stanley online unit uh, back during the dot-com crash. And uh, that's so it's a little bit interesting to me that they've subsequently decided to buy E-Trade and get back into that business uh, after they exited it, uh, uh, you know, more than a decade, a couple decades back now. Right. So that was uh, that was interesting. Then uh, I got stolen away from Morgan by a thing called Forward Funds in San Francisco. This was the uh, investment services arm of the Getty family office. And uh, I got to go in and, and work with a lot of really interesting and smart people, including uh, the patriarch uh, Gordon Getty himself, who's a smart guy and understands the industry very well, came to work every day, even though goodness knows he doesn't have to. And, uh, and there I got my start with sustainability investing because why they hired me, why they called me over at, at Morgan was uh, they had won an RFP to co-brand a mutual fund with the Sierra Club. They were a little bit surprised to win the RFP and get the business, and they looked around and said, uh-oh, we don't have anybody to manage this portfolio. Right. So they knew I had this background in earth science and like archaeology, and they thought, huh, here is an equities guy who understands uh, a little bit about sustainability and about the environment. This is in 2001, Robert, so it was early. And uh, they, uh, they poached me away, and I moved to San Francisco and uh, started running the Sierra Club Stock Fund. Then uh, subsequently, we uh, later in in 2007, we founded Green Alpha Advisors, and in 2008, launched our first strategy. So that's a little background. Very cool. And we're going to dig right in there. But you know, before we dig into to some of your now current strategy on sustainability and and green investing, you know, I have to ask. You know, as a as a core Indiana Jones fan, and uh, I know most of my audience are probably Indiana Jones fans. You know, I can't remember the last time I talked to a, a former or current archaeologist. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about that experience and how that lent itself to then investing. Well, it was a great experience. It, it was a lot of fun. I um, did archaeology and physical anthropology. That's the branch of, of anthropology that's more the stones and bones as opposed to the cultural anthropology, which is more the uh, histories and stories and legends. And... Uh, and I worked, I was at the University of Utah. I graduated from there uh, with uh, a bachelor's in anthro and then went into a PhD program in physical anthro, which involved a lot of archaeology. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Indiana Jones, too. And uh, I think most of the people still working in that industry would say, we wish it was a little more like that. <laughs> it's actually um, very procedural and careful and scientific and uh, it's an awful lot of digging and then drawing and photographing and then digging some more. And then there's a lot of walking around looking for stuff. <laughs> and it's actually a great life. I loved it. I, you know, I did that right up until I decided to, uh, to go do uh, my graduate work in finance. Uh, I left before finishing my PhD. I'm one of those guys that, that quit, on, quit on their doctorate before they could quite finish it and went off to do something else. Um, but I loved it. You know, you, uh, you spend the summers and, and the, the dig seasons out on the ground, you know, and, and just in the desert or wherever it is you're digging and you, and you have your, you know, your, your, maybe your dog and your cooler with a few beers in it and you work hard all day and you just relax under the stars at night and it's a wonderful life. But for me, and this isn't true of everyone, a lot of the real scholars that dig into it, uh, really commit to it and really contribute a lot to our knowledge about previous civilizations and about humanity in general. But for me, it started to feel like 
well, this is a little bit like spending my whole life at summer camp, and maybe I should think about doing something else. I guess it wasn't a perfect personality fit for me, even though I loved it. Uh, and so I was ready to move on, and uh, and in uh, 93, uh, I did. And uh, and I left the world of uh, digging holes in the ground and, uh, and went to business school. Nice. Well, I, I, one last follow-up on that. Do you have any – what's your coolest archaeology story? I mean, we, I know you got one. Um. That's a really good question, and it's tough because there's a handful of fun ones. Um, you know, I worked a couple of seasons in Jordan uh, at the town of Petra, and since I bring this one up because the site Last Crusade. Last Crusade. Let's you said go. you're an Indiana Jones fan, so yeah. I got to mention that one. Uh, <laughs> we spent two seasons working in a place called the Temple of the Winged Lions. Cool. And what we were doing was looking for a written archive uh, of the Nabataean Empire, which no one had yet at that time found. And yet they were a trading hub. You know, talk about investing and the global economics. They were they were one of the hearts of that in their day. And they were the key one of the key nodes on the Silk Road from China back through to the Middle East and then on up into Europe right around, you know, from the time of a couple hundred B.C. to a couple hundred A.D., uh, including having their own empire and then being occupied by Rome and then eventually succumbing to a big earthquake and the changing trade routes. And uh, we knew they must have very detailed trade records and tax records and all that stuff that literate civilizations come to have, especially the big ones that get wealthy, which Petra really was. You can just tell by those buildings in that movie. They were, they were not a poor civilization. And we didn't uncover uh, the archives. We thought a temple would be a good place to look. But meanwhile, we did found a uh, find a lot of really interesting stuff. Probably the coolest thing I personally found uh, was somebody's coin stash. It was cool. in a it was in a jar, uh, uh, like a pottery jar about this big, and it was buried under a bunch of rubble. So it had gotten buried by an earthquake, I reckon, mm -hmm. and um, it had just been forgotten and lost by somebody. And it was jammed with Nabataean and Roman coins. Wow! I think it's some dudes or some kids' coin stash, and I just happened to find it. It was cool stuff. Um, uh, I understand that, uh, it is on display at the Jordan museum. Wow. That, that's, uh, fun. So that was fun. That, that sounds so cool. Um, it's funny, actually, we, my wife and I, we were just in Israel over the summer and we wanted to go to Petra so bad, but Israel in August, uh, I think and my wife was pregnant at the time. So everybody was like, do not, do not go. And I was like, oh, bummer. And we like, we were planning on doing it. It just didn't happen. Well, it would have been 110 degrees, yeah. and and there's a lot of cool stuff to do there, but most of it involves hiking. So I don't know about being pregnant and doing that. Yeah, that's what everybody was saying. Like, dude, you're literally walking the entire time, and you 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 sweat like a camel. But camels yeah. don't, you know, you need enough water like a camel. Anyways, we digress. But uh, <laughs> it's so, a good way though. Oh yeah, oh, that was awesome. But. All right, so now you know I want to get to your investing strategy, and, and real quick, I want to preface uh, our audience: uh, we're actually doing this interview uh, on March twelfth, twenty twenty. It's uh, one of those record crazy days that we've seen of late, and uh, so this so this interview is probably going to be coming out a little bit after today. So we'll probably be discussing some themes around today because I mean, uh, where are we at? Down, closed nine point nine percent down on the Dow. Anyways. But, but let, let's get into your investing philosophy and strategy at Green Alpha. Sure. You know, it, it's kind of a nice dovetail from, uh, from the background of, of the archaeology and the thinking about ancient civilizations. Because I think that it's interesting 
to bring an interdisciplinary approach to investing. Uh, you know, so many folks uh, are pretty narrowly focused just on uh, what you learn when you do an MBA. And that's, you know, do the discounted cash flow and figure out, do the valuation analysis. And these things are all very important. Don't get me wrong, but I think you get an extra dimension by bringing uh, a little bit more macro in and a little bit more long-term thinking in, particularly if you're a buy and hold, you know, long-term, long-only strategy like we are. Uh, you know, if you are doing high-frequency trading or any kind of, kind of flash-type strategies, that doesn't matter. But for the long-term investor, it does. And, uh, you know, my, my colleagues and I, we, we've learned a lot about what makes civilizations thrive and what makes them suffer and struggle. And I think that uh, bringing that approach and bringing a kind of a scientific perspective uh, to the whole endeavor is what makes this different. And so uh, I say that by way of getting to directly answering your question, which uh, is to say that we think there's uh, twin tailwinds and I can give a lot more color on this if you like. But we think there's two big tailwinds that are going to drive valuations and returns over the long run. Uh, crazy uh, down days like today, notwithstanding, uh, except for opportunities for entry points. Um, and those two things are one, uh, innovation. You, you have to own innovation. Uh, this has been the primary driver of economic growth for yeah, almost the entire history of civilization since somebody chiseled out a wheel. Uh, and there, it's, we think it's very important to make sure you own the uh, firms that, that own the IP around the innovation. Uh, the value almost always rolls up to the owner of the intellectual property. This is critical. You, you need to own that uh, because this is where forward growth comes from. Um, and then secondly, today, uh, we're in a little bit of a different time in that the system level risks that confront the global economy are different and more pressing than they've ever been in at any time in, in the history of civilization. And so these system level risks, and, and this is a little bit where the divergence from traditional portfolio management comes in. These system level risks, uh, of course, are the climate crisis. They are resource degradation. So things like topsoil and water degradation, the air, uh, whatever resource you care to mention, really. And then uh, worsening inequality. These are all system level risks that provide that that present fundamental threats to the global economy. And they're a big deal. So uh, we think that making sure to not own the causes or the or the main causes of those risks is paramount because Taking a long-term view, by definition, anything that presents a threat to the economy, a long-term threat to undermine the economy, by definition, makes a crappy long-term investment. You can't hold that indefinitely because it will cause the economy to collapse. This is why we've never owned fossil fuels, for example. Uh, not so much because we signed up for the divest-invest movement in some ESG way, but because we could see that they can't persist indefinitely as the way to power civilization, and therefore that their growth phase is likely to not last very much longer, if any longer at this point. Uh, now, will fossil fuels be around for a long time? Sure, of course. There's still so many gas burning cars out there and other uses for them. It's just that we believe their, their growth phase is over and certainly their rapid growth phase is over. Uh, as you know very well, Robert, stock prices are based on growth expectations. You, you can forget about that for, for fossil fuels from now on. And while we've been fossil free since we launched our, our firm, uh, now it's more obvious than ever that that was the, the appropriate long-term call. It avoids downside risk, and uh, it, as we transition to a more sustainable economy and try to try to get away from the system-level risk that fossils provide, and then it also means your capital isn't tied up over there, and so you're more free to invest in the big innovators that are providing, 
not only solutions to our system level risks, but also that are just innovating in a way that makes the economy more productive and efficient and therefore creates value and therefore wealth. Right. So that's really the, the superstructure of our strategy. Gotcha. All right. So as you said, you're, you're really, you built your, your fun and, and strategy based on the two tailwinds being innovation. And I think you said sustainability is the second one, but I'm just assuming that it's sustainability as well. Um, sustainability is good shorthand for it. I right. really think of it as steering out of the path of system level risk. I see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So out of the path of system level risk. And, and <laughs> <laughs> so, so then I know I can already hear my audience asking me, we'll ask him, you know, well, what's your criteria to really be able to suss out which companies fit your strategy and, and you'd like to add to your portfolio? So this is really the key question in, in the world of sustainability oriented investing right now. Uh, and there's a, a hundred different ways to do it. Uh, you know, there's the most common approach that equity managers are taking right now is to apply ESG scores. Right. And there's any number of vendors. Yeah. Real, real quick, for those who may not know, what is an oh. ESG score? ESG refers to environmental, social, and governance. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, the acronym. And normally, uh, ESG criteria. Now, here's one of the one of the tricks, though, or one of the issues, uh, that there are different um, criteria for ESG depending on what organization you're talking to. Uh, like MSCI has their own ESG criteria. There's uh, one of the big vendors is called Sustainalytics. They've got their own ideas. Morningstar has their own ideas. Uh, there's any number of different ways to slice up ESG criteria. And some focus more on the E, we certainly do, environmental, others more on the S, social, and others still others more on the G, governance. I also happen to think the governance is very important because that comes back around to things like fundamental value, like is, is a corporation a good steward of capital? Uh, that's a governance issue, and it's also a fundamental value issue. So E and G, I, I think, are the most important, although S is certainly important too, and we can talk about that because... Things like having a more diverse leadership team mean the organization probably, science shows us, uh, probably has greater cognitive capacity and therefore is more likely to make better long-term decisions. So E and S and G are all important, but we focus very much on the E because that's where most of the system level risks are coming from and where we see an awful lot of the innovation coming from in order to uh, address those risks or at least find a different way to run the economy that doesn't create so many risks. So ESG. <laughs> ESG. Perfect. Okay. Now that, now we can get back to the original question. So how, how do you use ESG score and, and some of your other criteria to, to find investments for your portfolio? Okay. So having said all that and telling you how much I value ESG, I will tell you, we don't use ESG scores. <laughs> we don't buy them from Morningstar or, you know, MSCI or anybody else. And there is a simple reason for that because we think that very often uh, organizations are, are prioritizing the ESG criteria in the wrong order. And I can illustrate that with, with a couple of examples. But uh, we think that, Jeremy, you know, um, you know uh, uh, GMO uh, out of uh, Boston, uh, a big, like, whatever, $110 million, billion dollar manager, maybe, maybe more like 100 after today, but um, they... Uh, uh, they have a one of their senior guys, one of the founders and portfolio managers, Jeremy Grantham, said something interesting a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he said, you know, E is about survival. S and G are about behavior. So we know where to focus our attention. We agree with that. He put it very concisely. I, I wish I'd said that. And 
So when we look at a company and our highest level heuristic about whether or not we can start to consider it for one of our strategies is not to look at its ESG scores, but rather to look at where it's earning its revenue. And what's key there is to see, is this firm getting paid to lower the overall risk profile to the global economy, or is it getting paid to increase risks to us all? I see. For me, this is crucial, and it has to come before you start thinking about ESG criteria, uh, because it doesn't matter to me in terms of long-term viability if a company does have wonderful things like uh, great benefits or good diversity policies or, or, or whatever you might find on, on the ESG criteria that make it look very high ranking uh, when in fact it is doing a lot to undermine the global economy in the long run by presenting system level risk. So for example, you can find sustainability portfolios that are full of things like Anadarko and TransCanada and companies that are visibly creating more risk for the global economy in the long run and yet they can find their way into ESG branded or even sustainability branded portfolios because they have good ESG scores. We think this is the wrong approach. I see. You have to start by figuring out if the company is raising or lowering the overall risk to the global economy and then you can think about your ESG uh, scores. All right, so then from there, you know, look, we're we're primarily a small micro nano cap podcast, you know, mm -hmm. and I know, I know just from experience in, in, in doing all these interviews over the years with lots of value based investors and, yeah. you know, uh, e even growth and GARP investors, you know, a lot of the times there's, there's a, uh, there's a risk premium. Some, some investors will take depending on where that company is, is situated in terms of sector and yeah. some of the products that they're putting out there. But for, for it sounds like with your strategy, you know, you have to really have a good idea of what that risk premium is because, you know, you might be dealing with, and this is just a projection. I, I don't know for a fact, but you might yeah. be dealing with companies that may not be profitable or even revenue generating yet, especially if they're developing technologies for the future. I mean, so how for you and, and your strategy, are you looking mostly for revenue generating companies just to start there or if it's a if a if it's a revolutionary technology, maybe still pre-revenue. Do you tend to also look at those as well? Both, both and. Okay. Uh, mostly, we want to focus on companies that do have revenue, and ideally, not only revenue but also earnings and free cash flow. Uh, that said, where there is a fantastic opportunity that might still be uh, probably not pre-rev but pre-earnings anyway, because they're still in growth phase and plowing so much back into the business, we will certainly look at those. And, you know, our overall approach, once we've decided, so we call our thesis Next Economics because we talk about the next economy and we talk about uh, how we model what it can look like, how uh, a low risk economy will look. And we try to invest in the companies that are leading the way to that world, right, that, that are out in front of that right now and, and maybe could even already be a citizen of a very low risk economy going forward. Uh, and so that comes down to evaluating where the revenues come from, like we were talking about a moment ago. Okay, once we've determined that a company is a good citizen of the next economy, doing more to lower global risk than to raise it, uh, we then uh, look a little bit more traditional. Uh, I, I then want to, I guess, uh, of the things you mentioned, we're closest to being herp. Um, we call that huge upside at a reasonable price, Garp. <laughs> I, I think you might want to change that one. <laughs> yeah. 
And so uh, we have an approach that I've kind of taken to calling uh, modified Graham Dodd, mm -hmm. meaning we do want to look for good value relative to the growth prospects. Why that word modified has to be on there is because, you know, old Ben Graham, you know, one of his one of his key rules was thou shall not do macro. Just look at the valuation. Look at what you're getting for what you have to pay the end. OK, that does work. And that that is a, a valuable approach, especially in his day in the 30s. That was kind of what you had to, to work with. It, we don't live in that world anymore. It's a time of exponential change, both in terms of innovation and and just economic change and in terms of the big risks confronting us. These things are both larger and faster moving than they were in his time. And not only that, but their rate of acceleration is faster. And so if you're not doing macro, in addition to trying to figure out the fundamentals of any company you're considering investing in, you're not thinking through the company in what I would consider to be an appropriate way. If you're not layering the macro environment over the company's prospects, what chance do you have of having an accurate discounted cash flow? You know, uh, like just to just to uh, give an e uh, a low hanging fruit example, uh, think about something like uh, the world's leading. And again, it comes back to the ownership of the intellectual property, uh, the world's leading IP owner for the most advanced wind turbines. OK, well, uh, they have a certain cost of goods sold. They have a certain margin. Uh, they can work on improving those things and, and widening their margins, of course, like any other business. But then let's compare that to the other generators of electricity, like, uh, you know, the easiest one would be uh, like coal-fired turbines and, and boilers. Well, okay, we know based on IEA uh, speculation and other forecasts that wind energy is going to grow, you know, between 20 and 25 percent a year every year for the next two decades. This is a macro picture. This is thinking through system level risks. This is... Uh, judging what's going to happen to that market. Uh, we know that coal is in decline. So just because, you know, Ben Graham would have said, oh, my God, you can have that coal company. I mean, I don't know that he would have said that. <laughs> so, but his analysis might lead one to say something like, uh, wow, you can have this coal company for five times earnings right now. But this wind company, you got to pay 22 times earnings. Uh, I know which one I think is value. Right. Well, I, I would flat disagree with that. You have to consider the macro picture. You have to look at which one's more innovative. Uh, you have to look at which one's looking forward and which one's looking backward, and you have to consider what's likely to unfold over the next couple decades. Again, long only long-term strategies. Gotcha. So, so uh, this is why we think about modified uh, Graham Dodd. Yes, we want value, but we want good value relative to growth prospects, and that might not always mean a good PE. Right. I mean, so then then it really comes down to even because let's say you don't have good PE stock, or maybe that company's still not profitable yet, management comes into play more so than a little bit, I'd yes. say. I mean, again, small micro cap, small micro nano cap podcast. I mean, I think I ask everybody on here about management. In your case, I feel like it's even more crucial. So, I mean, how do you guys assess management so that you can tell that they're also in it for the long term and they have the strategy in place for the company to get to those prospects that you potentially foresee? comes right back to governance and why it's so important. I think every investor, whether or not you care at all about ESG, you should be really uptight about, about evaluating governance. And for me, the key things to look at there, uh, there, there are several fold. One, you want to look at how the board compensates them. 
I get a little bit nervous when the board compensates them uh, too much on per share metrics. I don't really care that much about earnings per share because that's easy to manipulate. And uh, you can manipulate it in ways that are bad for the company, uh, like by doing too much in the way of share buybacks. Uh, if, you, if you're so compensated for having uh, a good EPS that you do things that are a little bit crazy, like go into debt in order to buy enough shares back to make that look good, that's terrible. That, that's a little bit like a farmer eating the seed corn. Uh, when you should be plowing a lot of that back into your R&D and generating new IP and hiring the top talent. These are the things that I want to look for in terms of really liking the management. Uh, secondly, I want a big commitment to innovation. I just mentioned R&D. Uh, the, the more they and, and it varies by industry, of course, not every industry is, is as innovation forward as every other. Uh, but I want to see them putting a significant amount of those revenues right back into R&D. Uh, I want their intellectual uh, intellectual property portfolio to be growing. Uh, and not just not just kind of coasting on their laurels from the last you know cool thing that they did right. because this is where growth comes from again. Now you have to be a little more patient with a company like that, but that's okay because it will pay off for the long term investor. You know, uh, for an example here, uh, I won't I don't necessarily need to discuss any individual companies unless you ask. But uh, I think about the owners of the uh, gene editing technology CRISPR Cas9. These companies are very early. They are not pre-rev, but they're pretty low rev still because they don't have any therapies in the clinic yet. And yet this is transformative technology. And basically three companies own most of the intellectual property around it so far. You have to own the basket. You need to own all three. And we're talking about humanity having now taken direct control of evolution after three and a half billion years of evolution going on. We can now control it directly by editing genes. This is inestimably huge. And just because they don't have they don't have uh, therapies in the clinic yet does not mean there is an enormous upside potential for them. Now, is there a risk? Could could uh, some of their trials fail or even cause problems? Yeah, and I think that's why their valuations are still pretty low. You know, the three owners of most of the IP uh, together are still valued at less than five billion dollars. Right. Right. And and yet I think that in a decade it could be some enormous multiple of that number. Uh, and yet the street hasn't really bought it yet, which is why they're still so cheap. Well, you but know, this is what I mean. oh, by owning sorry. IP, I, I was just going to tie tie a bow on that. Yeah. yeah. Saying, <laughs> this is what I mean by making sure you own the critical IP that's helping to define the future, even if the PE isn't there for it yet. Because mm -hmm. in these, in the case of these companies, it certainly isn't. There just isn't that much red yet. Right. Well, at the end of the day, what it seems like is core to your strategy is your probably your philosophy on time horizon. So I'd love to learn a little bit more on that. You know, what 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 do you think about time horizon in terms of your investing strategy? Yeah, we're we're certainly very long term. Uh, we think that we're and and a lot of our clients concentrate around four hundred one k's, retirement plans, and then uh, endowments and other organizations like family offices that have very long term, if not perpetual, horizons. And we do think that's appropriate. Uh, you don't. Uh, you might do very well with our strategies over a year or two. 2019, we did exceptionally well. We earned a lot of alpha over every uh, major benchmark. Um, so far this year, we've, we're down, as you might imagine, but we've shown decent downside capture versus the big benchmarks, uh, down about two-thirds as much as them so far this year. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, you, you might do okay on the short term, but we, you might not. One of the things about our strategies, Robert, is that 
we don't try to correlate. We think about risk as as big risks that can really uh, deflate, if not uh, under, uh, outright undermine the economy. And we work to to manage those risks. We think we are managing the risks that matter most. A lot of investment management is focused on thinking about risk as tracking error with the benchmark. Uh, we disagree with that. We think that volatility and tracking error are not the same thing as risk. And therefore, we don't attempt to correlate with any bench. And this is why you really need to think about our strategies as, as long term, uh, because we don't, uh, since we don't manage to correlate uh, or to have low tracking error, uh, we don't. <laughs> we don't. We don't. You know, if you if you put uh, if you put a, a historical price chart of our mutual fund uh, against any big benchmark, you will notice general equities correlation, sure, but you won't notice that much correlation. Uh, because in looking for the smartest companies with the best governance and the and the most careful stewards of capital that also own the best intellectual and most intellectual property for what's next, again, as opposed to looking backwards at what was, um, you need to be a go anywhere strategy. And so we're all cap, cross sector, cross industry and global, uh, which means we're not going to correlate with any given bench that much. Uh, our our stated bench is the MACI Acqui IMI, the Investable Market Index, because we do view that as our opportunity set, any stock anywhere. And so uh, that's our stated bench. But even then, we don't correlate with it that closely. And so if you're looking for benchmark type returns, you should probably just go ahead and, and buy your cheap Vanguard fund and take beta. Right. Uh, but if you're interested in being innovation facing and thinking about a sustainable economy and having a shot at some alpha, uh, especially over the long term, uh, our strategies might look really interesting. Gotcha. So, you know, I, I in preparation for our interview today, uh, your team sent over some some interesting aspects of your background as well. Not obviously not just your your archaeology, but, you know, I wanted to hit on this point about the politics of sustainability because you were, uh, as it says here, the first asset manager invited to testify before the House Selection Committee Committee on the Climate Crisis. You know, yeah. so I, I'm just very curious why Congress uh, needed to hear more from you and, and what that experience was like and what you were really trying to push. That was a, that was an interesting day. Um, the, the House Select Committee on the Cr Climate Crisis uh, is chaired by uh, Representative Kathy Castor. Uh, she represents one of the, I forget the number, one of the districts in Florida near Tampa. And, uh, you know, she, she's not my rep. I hadn't known about her before or met her, uh, but I was very impressed by her and her committee. Um, she's very committed to the idea of sustainability and, and confronting the climate crisis. And she wanted to hear from all kinds of industries around this country about uh, what the risks to their industry may be, but also what risks their industry might be presenting to exacerbate the climate crisis may be. So uh, I testified on both of those topics. And uh, I said the risk to our industry is that the economy could really be undermined by the climate crisis. And you could see asset prices deflate. You could see the economy itself run into some uh, struggles. Um, more interesting, I think, and less expected uh, by her and the other members of the committee was the risk I mentioned coming from the investment management industry. Uh, given our conversation to this point, you're not going to be surprised to hear me say uh, I said the biggest problem coming from the investment management industry regarding the climate crisis is that, for the most part, our industry is flat ignoring it. 
Um, this, you know, catches everyone a little bit by surprise, but it's true. Uh, you probably are aware 80, 85% of every uh, dollar going into equities uh, today uh, just flows straight into an index fund. Well, I view this as a fundamental problem because the large indices, especially the S&P 500 funds, the Dow 30 funds, uh, any of the major uh, benchmarks, uh, these are full of the causes of systemic risk, full of them. Uh, the S&P 500 has 60 fossil fuels companies in it. I tell people, you know, if you buy the S&P 500, you might believe you're investing passively, but you're not. You're making an active bet on potential collapse. You're hoping to profit from the climate crisis. Uh, this is a problem. And then on a higher level, I think this is dangerous for investment management. I'm sure you've heard this argument before, because what it's doing is short circuiting the invisible hand. Of course, what investments are supposed to do is chase the next best idea and the greatest new uh, advance in productivity and just economic economic expansion. Right. But as long as everybody's just blindly indexing, that doesn't happen anymore. Stocks aren't being bought because of their relative valuation or how good their idea is or even what the company does anymore. 80% of all stocks are being bought because they sit in an index somewhere. This is uh, a complete short circuit of the efficient market. It is a uh, reversal of the invisible hand. And it's, uh, in my opinion, very dangerous over the long term. And I told the committee that there is cognitive dissonance between how we all invest and what we're all doing to respond to the climate crisis. Even a lot of people who would consider themselves very concerned about the climate crisis just simply have the S&P 500 in their 401k, for example, just because that's the conventional wisdom. That's what you do. You just buy the index. You know, we're, we are all told that you'll never beat it and you'll never find a lower fee. Mm, that latter part may be true, <laughs> but the former part certainly isn't. And uh, the other, and then you're also going to get caught with a bunch of the causes of, of our big high-level risks. It's not, you know, you know, the governor uh, of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, is is one of the the big voices on this that that agrees with me. And or maybe you should say I agree with him. I don't know, but but uh, he's he's saying there's going to be a dramatic repricing at some point for the carbon-exposed economy when markets have a general realization uh, of how dangerous it really is and how, how much risk it really does present. He talks about a Minsky moment, right? A dramatic downward repricing of, of any asset class. He thinks there's a Minsky moment coming for the carbon economy and not the one we just had Monday because of uh, uh, OPEC opening up the spigot, but rather one that, that comes with a realization that we're not gonna be dependent on fossil fuels forever and that they do cause too much risk. Well, if you own SPX, when that Minsky moment comes, you're caught with your pants down. And it's not uh, its not that great from an investment management point of view. It's not that good from an efficient markets point of view. And it certainly isn't good uh, in terms of investments doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is chasing the next best new idea and not the same old busted idea about, I don't know, fossil fuels or, or internal combustion engines. So, so what could, so, okay, you, you went in, you testified, you said everything that you more or less said on here, yeah. probably condensed a lot, condensed a lot more. But yeah, they only give you so many minutes. Uh, unlike you, they're not generous with time. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let me ask you this. So let's say you were on that committee. What should they do based on all this information that you presented to them? You know, um, they asked me that. What uh, can they do? You know, subsequently though, at a, at a reception, um, a couple of them asked me like, well, what might be an interesting policy proposal? Uh, 
And, you know, I, I had some things that I know they can't do, but that I think might help break the cognitive dissonance. I said, well, you're going to tell me this is not possible in the current environment, but what if you did something like treat it like cigarettes? What if when you log into your online brokerage account and you go to buy an SPX fund, uh, what if there was a pop-up? Yeah, I, I think everybody should be able to buy what they want. Everybody needs to, like, I don't think they should prohibit anything. Uh, but what if you just made sure people were informed? So I said, what if you go to buy an S&P 500 fund and just before you could actually click the buy button, there was a little pop-up in between that said, hey, warning, uh, the portfolio you're about to buy contains companies that are incompatible with a livable climate. What if you just did that? That would help break the cognitive dissonance. And of course, they all shook their heads and said, oh my God, I could never get anything like that through. But that's okay. I just wanted to put that in their heads that there are policy things you could think about doing. Uh, uh, and, and we need to do something to help people understand that the way they invest really does impact what goes on in the economy because clearly where investment flows go is where the economy happens. And as long as 80% of all investments are going to the legacy economy that got us into all this trouble, that's the economy we're going to continue to get. And so it's important to break that cognitive dissonance. And I think that it's as important in investment management as it is anywhere else in the economy with the possible exceptions of energy and transportation. But see where capital flows in energy and transportation determines the trajectory of those industries. And so investment and management might be the most important overall industry in terms of combating the climate crisis. And the first step there is for people to be informed about what they're investing in and what impact that's having. And so like something like a, like a funny pop-up that goes, hey, just be aware what you're about to buy now. That'd be a good start. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to at least see the proposal and at least it be debated. You know, start here. They say, no, okay, we can probably we can meet somewhere. Yeah, let's have a debate. That's all. That's all <laughs> yeah. I'm asking. Oh, yeah. All right. So here's my, my favorite question to ask uh, everybody who I have come on here. You know, I, what, what investing experience would you say impacted your career the most? Early in my career, uh, we were going through the dot-com bubble. And I was young enough and naive enough uh, that, um, like a lot of managers at that time, uh, you felt like a genius just because everything was going up and you couldn't buy anything that wasn't going up. And you decide, ah, this is easy. You know, that old, uh, that old Michael Lewis thing, they felt like the masters of the universe. It's true, you kind of did. Um, and so I learned an awful lot from the dot-com collapse of 2000, March of 2000. I remember it very well. Um, you know, I had, I had friends who saw it coming. There was one guy I worked with who was short Amazon. And of course that went on to rally and become one of the globe's leading companies, but he was short Amazon on the basis that they, he, back when they were only selling books, they were trading at some stupid 400 multiple, and he calculated that they were going to have to sell every book ever sold for 40 years to justify that multiple. And so he was short, and he just got his hat handed to him because, like Buffett said, you can you can stay short a lot longer than the market can can stay uh, the market can stay irrational a lot longer than you can stay short. It was true, and so I was definitely on the long side of all of those. And he was right; he was just early. And man, that experience taught me a lot about forget everything you think you know and think about every company intrinsically. That is where I learned, and we practice this at Green Alpha to this day, 
Forget everything you know about what's in the index or what the trend is or what the conventional wisdom is and think about every company you're going to buy like you're a venture capitalist or like you're a private equity investor and actually dig into it and judge it and and evaluate it on its merits, period. And not just because it's in an index or not just because it has a decent ESG score. That's not going to work. You need to think everything through like it's not a public stock and like you need to really be able to dig in and understand that business. And if you do that, I think you've got a much better chance at avoiding long-term risk. And I think you've got a much better chance of finding good long-term growth prospects for decent prices. Well, with that, um, you know, you, you've given some great advice already. But, you know, for let's say, let's say as, as it exists right now today, because I, I, I have a distinct feeling that today is not going to March 12, 2020 is not going to be the end of this. You know, we're probably going to see some more down days. So, you know, what, what's your advice for someone who's been through some of these, you know, boom and bust recession uh, cycles, you know, what, what should new investors look for uh, to either to either maintain the chill or to, you know, potentially profit from situations like this? So you're right in that, that this probably isn't the bottom. And, and yet calling a bottom is pretty much impossible. There will inevitably, there'll be some people that do it. Uh, that's probably chance, which is cool. I'm happy for them. <laughs> I, uh, I think that uh, looking for uh, the greatest beneficiaries of the reinflation when that happens. I know a lot of people think this is going to be V-shaped, and as soon as we get past the worst of coronavirus, it's we're going to have a, a rally that could very well be. It could be more U-shaped in that it takes a lot longer than people think. Uh, I don't really believe in the L-shaped uh, uh, narrative, that it's just going to go down and stay down indefinitely. I, I don't think the economy works like that. I think that there's always growth. I think there's always innovation. I think people are people and we're expansionist by nature. I think that uh, we are going to see a recovery. I just don't know when. Okay, so what, do, first of all, if you're buying now, you need to be thinking long-term because there could be more downside pain to come. Uh, maybe not that much, but maybe quite a bit more. You know, in 2008, we fell in half. We're not there yet, but we could be. We could go that far, right? Um, in 2000, we fell in half. Like these events happen. We, we have 50% uh, bear markets sometimes. Okay, so who are the biggest beneficiaries when there's uh, a return to growth? Uh, one, governance again. The companies that have been the smartest stewards of capital. If you, during the good times, if you were spending all your free cash flow and then maybe on top of that even borrowing to do things like buy your shares back, well, now you're going to get downgraded. Your credit's going to be downgraded. You're going to have a tougher time accessing capital. You're going to have a much tougher time competing with companies that weren't doing that when times were good. So look for the good stewards of capital. So right back to governance. Uh, companies that were doing minimal buybacks and were uh, doing things like reinvesting in top talent and R&D, these are the places. And, and so therefore, they've got better credit ratings, better profiles, cheaper access to capital, more access to capital when times get good again. These are going to be the companies that gain market share and grow faster and provide better returns for their owners. Secondly, like I was saying before, take advantage of pullbacks to buy these owners of the intellectual property that is defining the future. So we talked a little bit about biotech. Check. Do that one. Uh, think about the, the big leaders with the best IP portfolios in energy. Check. In transportation. Check. Do these things. I'm just telling you how I manage my portfolio now. <laughs> Do these things and uh, you'll be owning the companies that have the best chance of the most rapid reacceleration when we do reach the bottom. Again, I don't know when that's going to be, but we will. 
and you want to be positioned to benefit from that when it happens. And uh, I again, without trying to call a date of the bottom, I would also caution folks not to wait too long for that because most investors miss it because of the reasonable fear that they have that this that the pullback is going to go on indefinitely. Uh, almost every uh, non-professional and a lot of professional investors uh, end up missing a big chunk of the rally. And and that's a real risk. Yep. Uh, Peter Lynch talked about that best in his book, uh, One Up on Wall Street. That's an old timey book, but he he nailed that. <laughs> it was my first book that I read on investing. So I, I, I 100% agree. So, Gar yeah. so Garvin, with that, you know, uh, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Where can my audience go and find everything they need to know about you and Green Alpha? Probably our website's the best place, uh, greenalphaadvisors.com. Um, and we spelled advisors with an O-R-S, not an E-R-S. You know, I just thought that's how you spelled it when I founded the firm. Um, and it turns out, guess what? Both are right. <laughs> I up in low ED and it goes, both are correct. I'm like, oh, sure. Um, so greenalphaadvisors.com. Um, uh, you know, I'm on Twitter uh, at Garvin1313. Believe it or not, there's so many Garvins, I had to resort to two 13s. Um, I was like, really? Um, and then, uh, of course, we're, we're on LinkedIn, uh, both as a firm and, and as individuals. Um, and uh, you can also, uh, on our website, uh, sign up to get our uh, periodic uh, newsletters. We had one come out Tuesday about the pullback to tell people what we're thinking about that. And then also, I read a monthly column for Worth magazine, and you can see that on worth.com. Perfect. Well, with that, Garvin, thank you again for joining me. This was an absolute pleasure, and uh, I look forward to chatting again soon. Hey, Robert. It was tons of fun. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast, and thank you, Garvin, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast, or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube, and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast, where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things investing. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.